you are with us this morning. There we go. Uh, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here as well. So we are continuing our series, Come to the Table, this morning with a discussion that I think that we're all going to love, and that is our enemies. I'm sure that no one in this room has anyone that they dislike, someone they disagree with, right? Everybody's just kosher with everybody, probably. And so I thought an example to kind of intro this conversation would be a safe one, an easy one to talk about politics. Um, Again, the elders have asked me not to, but I just, I can't help myself. Um, But some of you may know this, some of you probably don't, but I am an elected official in our neighborhood. I'm on the Echo Valley Homeowners Association Board. It's an elected official. I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of the HOA of Echo Valley. Some have considered it the greatest neighborhood in Little Rock. Many have said this. Many have said this. Uh, and as we work to convert the block, you know, we've got, we've got a decent number of houses represented from Echo Valley in this church. But uh, as part of the Homeowner Association, I go to these meetings and I suggest things, and those are normally shot down. For example, one recent idea that was shut down was best yard of the month partnered with worst yard of the month. I thought we needed a balance in the neighborhood that would help encourage people to maybe keep things nice and tidy in our neighborhood. They wouldn't have to have it the whole month, just maybe a day of shame. That was shut down. Another idea that I brought up to at our neighborhood board was a thing that, that people did in Kentucky called Fancy Farm. Now, this is kind of where the political conversation comes into it. Fancy Farm is a political rally in Kentucky. It's a bipartisan political rally in the most western part of the state where Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, they all come together and they all yell at each other. Some of you right now are like, this sounds like the worst thing ever. It is. It's terrible. But what it is, is this kind of informal political rally where uh, political speakers will get up and they'll try to tell jokes or stories that, that are different than a traditional stump speech. And the crowd will either boo or cheer them on. It is crazy. It is something that none of us should want to ever go to. But again, with my other ideas being shot down, I threw this out. I thought, what if the Echo Valley Homeowners Association could sponsor a a fancy farm for Little Rock? And the president rightfully said, no, that's a terrible idea. And I said, well, I mean, they're all enemies, right? Like they don't get along. They're on different sides of the aisle what could we do? And he said, what if we just did this? We invited them to our neighborhood pool and said, just come meet and greet. We're not going to have a rally. We're not going to do speeches. What if we just asked them to come and gather together in a common place? And I said, president, that is a terrible idea. And he said, well, we're going to try it. And so then I spent the last month contacting all of these different members from political parties. Uh, Libertarians, Republicans, Democrats, you name it, I was contacting them if they were running for local offices. And I told them, this is what we're going to do. We're going to ask you just to come and gather together at our neighborhood pool, get to know people, shake some hands, nothing politically intense. And friends, they came. We had a decent amount of political candidates running for local offices that came. And the most disgusting thing was they were nice to each other. They all got along. The scariest thing in the whole thing was two candidates who were running against each other. She asked the other candidate, how's your son's soccer league going? And I thought, what? You're supposed to hate each other because you're this party and you're that party, but you know that he, one, has a son. Like She even knew the league that the kid was playing in. Everybody shook hands. They got along. And I left that thinking, this is incredible. These people aren't really enemies. Now, they are political opponents, obviously, 
But there was something about getting them together, putting them on the same page, on the same level, that changed the narrative. It changed the conversation. And I believe that is what happens in the enemies that we have in our lives. I believe that is why Jesus encourages us, and we'll look at this in a little bit, to love our enemies. Not because it's easy, not because it's something that we want to do, but it's something that changes within us. It changes the way that we look at people, the way that we treat people, the way that we talk to them. And when we do it with a heart that Jesus encourages us to have, everything changes. And I want to introduce a story here in Luke chapter 5 that we've probably heard before. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now on the surface, this is a pretty regular story. Even in in the context of Luke chapter 5, this is a similar model of something that we've already seen. If you go to Luke chapter 5, verse 10, you see the calling of Simon, these fishermen. It says, Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Again, if you go back to that 27 passage, it's a very similar model where Levi is just going to leave everything and follow him. But what makes Levi different than the fishermen is that Levi wasn't a blue-collar worker. He wasn't somebody who spent every day on a boat, every day around nets, every day catching fish, preparing the fish, selling the fish. Like, that wasn't what Levi was doing. What Levi was doing was more malicious. Levi spent his day collecting money from his neighbors, from the people in his community. And not just for Levi, but also for the Roman government. And you start adding these layers to who Levi is, and you start recognizing that Levi is not just a foe, Levi is an enemy. Levi is somebody that this community would have looked down upon, that they would have hated, would have snarled when they walked past, or they would have tried to avoid him in any social situation. Levi was somebody that in this context people hated. And here we find this really interesting thing that Jesus does. Where he doesn't, he doesn't do what we would normally do, right? We'd ignore Levi. Maybe you'd say something in passing to Levi that was mean or hateful. But what Jesus does is he looks at Levi. He sees Levi. He recognizes that Levi is a person far beyond what he's done. Jesus doesn't identify him as a tax collector. He calls him by name. He doesn't identify him by his actions, by the wrong that he's done to this, this people, not even that the Roman government that he's working with. Jesus removes those identity markers and he says, Levi, follow me. And you see something powerful in the actions of that experience too. Because when was the last time that someone just looked at you and said, follow me? It's probably been a while, right? Maybe if you've got kids, you've said that before. But if you're like the Kittingers, when we say, I'll let you to follow us, we have to kind of do a double take and make sure, okay, they're, not, they're actually not behind us now. Now we have to go find these kids. But here in this, this story, Jesus says, Levi, follow me, and Levi does. Imagine you're working at your office. The Messiah comes in and says, hey, follow me. You leave your desk, you leave the pen, you leave the computer, you leave everything that have become part of your identity to follow Jesus. I think that there's a couple of things happening. Levi has probably heard the stories of Jesus already. 
I think there's a lot of it too that Levi's probably tired of being hated. He's tired of being the enemy. He's tired of being associated with the Roman government, with stealing from these people that he calls his neighbors and friends. He's tired of that. And what I believe Levi is looking for in his life is just an invitation to the table. I mentioned ago that the people that Levi was around, his neighbors, likely would have just passed by him. Maybe they would have said hateful things to him, looked down on him. But the first time in a long time, Levi probably had a real connection with a person who saw him as a creation of God and not as a tax collector, not as somebody working for the Roman government. But for the first time, Levi was seen. If you've ever gone through periods of your life where you haven't been seen, you haven't been noticed, when you have that chance, that window opens up, you go for it. Because you know that there's something that is real that is right beyond those doors. And that's exactly what Levi does. But you still see this enemy idea that's happening here as the story develops. In verse 29, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. I'm pointing this passage out because it shows how wealthy Levi was. He's able to host a banquet. He's able to do something that a lot of people around Levi would not have been able to do. He prepares a large feast for all of his friends. But why? Because these are also enemies, right? That is something that happens when we allow people to have access at the table is, guys, they may bring their friends. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. Levi, for the first time in his life, has a seat to the table. And the first thing that Levi does is saying, how many chairs do we have around the house? Have you ever been a part of a party or a gathering like that where you're going around the house and you're trying to find all the chairs and all of a sudden you look at your table and the chairs don't match the rooms? You're like, this isn't part of our dining set. This is from our office. It's captivating. It's exciting what Levi is doing. But look at how the insiders respond to this. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complain to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Do you see what they're really saying? Jesus, Levi's the enemy. What are you doing, Jesus? Invite, go into Levi's house accepting an invitation from Levi. You know that he works for the Roman government. You know that he steals from our people. Jesus, why on earth would you provide access to this, for this man? Why would you give him a seat at your table? And Jesus responds, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see how Jesus responds to an enemy? It's not like how I often respond, or maybe you often respond. Jesus responds with love, with grace, with purpose, and more importantly, with access. Because again, when Levi is granted access, the first thing he does is look for more chairs. Because he's experienced something different that he knows that the people around him, his friend group, would love. They don't want to be seen as enemies anymore. They want to be seen as people who have access to the table, who have a seat, who have a larger purpose. And to do this, you've got to make room. I saw a story recently about a British soldier named Eric Lomax. There's a picture of him right here. 
Eric served in World War II with the British Army. He was from Scotland, and he joined the Army in, when he was 19 years old. And shortly after his service, around 1942, he was still in the service, but shortly after joining, he was captured by the Japanese forces in Singapore. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Eric Lomax, but he's somebody that when we talk about how we treat our enemies, we're going to all be honest and, and recognize that his anger was probably right, like justified, maybe even a little bit righteous. But Eric was serving in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese. And when he was captured by the Japanese, they transported him to Thailand. And they were going to build the Burma Railroad. If you're ever familiar with this, this is often called the Death Railway. It was a, a railroad that the Japanese were trying to build. That they used the POWs, prisoners of war. Um, they used anybody that they could capture and force them to build this road. It was terrible working conditions. And often when they would bring in somebody, especially a British soldier that they captured, what they would do is they would torture them. And Eric's story is a little bit different because Eric, when they captured him, they found a radio on his body. And they knew that he was kind of connected and that they, if they tortured him enough, that he would tell the secrets of what the British were trying to do in this context. But he never gave it up. He received torture day after day after day. And the story goes that one of his most prominent torturers in this life period of, of Eric Lovax was Nagas Takasi. He's an interpreter with the Japanese. And there, there's a picture of Nagasa and there's Eric Lomax there. And what you're seeing at the bottom is them shaking hands. And this is where this story gets interesting. So later on in Eric Lomax's life, he's still struggling with it. He's going to a therapist. He can't shake this feeling of pain and hurt that he experienced while he was tortured and he was captured. And he eventually decides what he needs to do. Again, this is something that a lot of us wouldn't do. He decides he needs to go reach out to the person that tortured him. And in 1997, he said, my intent behind reaching out to this person was to kill him. He's still an enemy, right? He hated this man. He made his life miserable, painful, difficult to exist. And so in 1997, he reaches out and they go to the railway that they were built and they shook hands. That's what he says, that when they met each other, they bowed out of respect. And as torturer, he starts crying the second that he sees him. Now, if you, if you want to learn more about this story, Eric Lomax actually wrote a book called The Railway Man, which is a memoir about what he experienced. And, and later on, there's a movie that they actually adapted this story. But I tell that story because these two individuals almost rightfully should be enemies. One tortured the other. One did everything he could to make this person's life miserable. But Eric Lomax, there's a little bit of Jesus in there, right? The way that he responds is different. Yeah, he had pain. Yeah, he had frustration. Yeah, there were feelings of, I want to hurt this man who hurt me. But when it came to it, what Eric Lomax did was he shook his hand and they cried together. And the story of them, of these two individuals, says that even later on in their life, they were friends. They corresponded, they visited as much as they could. They put their enemy identities behind them and said, we can do a greater good if we love each other. If we look past our differences, if we look past our pain and we move forward together, we can do something amazing and incredible. That's why the story lives on. It would have been a whole different story if they responded differently. 
because they decided to move forward with love and with grace and making space for the other. The story has become a movie and a book. But Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, this kind of radical way of approaching our enemies. He says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I want to break this down just a little bit, because in verse 43, Jesus does something that's kind of interesting. And often we just fly past it, but we need to look at it. So in 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To my knowledge, there's not a single passage in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemy. What we believe this is what's happening here is a watered-down rabbinical teaching that over time, and this is going to sound really uncommon, nobody's going to be familiar with this kind of way of thinking, but over time it became accepted in especially these Jewish rabbinical circles to start kind of hating people, right? Like, I, I disagree with this person, we voted differently, I don't like them. And then that, that gets a little more watered down where, okay, actually, I don't like this person. I do not want to be around this person. I disagree with them on everything. And then eventually it keeps going and building up to the point, you're like, ah, you know what? I hate that person. And it builds up. And so a lot of people believe what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you've heard this taught. Like this has been a common thing that people are using in your world, in your context to justify hating somebody that you disagree with, putting that enemy label on them. And so when Jesus, if he talks about something that's in the Old Testament, Jesus is always going to say, it is written. And so you get this audible language here that changes it. That's how we know that this is just something that's going around, that's being taught, that Jesus said, you've heard this, but we need to recognize that this is not the way of God. Hating somebody because you disagree with them is not the way of God. Hating somebody because you've labeled them as your enemy is not the way of God. And so he jumps back in. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not, do not, do not even the pagans do that. See what he's doing? Is he's saying, you're taking the easy way. Following Jesus, loving people the way that we are called to love them is not the easy way. It will be frustrating. It'll be painful. It'll be exhausting at times. But what we are called to do as followers of Christ is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. If we are going to follow Jesus... We've got to do this. We've got to be willing to look at our enemies and say, you know what? I need to give you a second chance. Maybe we need to have a dialogue about why we disagree on point A, point B, point C, or point D, depending on how long they've been your enemy. But we are called to love in the way that Jesus loves. This is a complete connection to Leviticus chapter 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the Old Testament, this idea of neighbor, the Israelites tried to make that a little bit selective, right? Like, 
We see this in the Good Samaritan, like, who really is my neighbor? But it's this broad term that talks about anyone that's around you. And so Jesus is using this Leviticus language to get us to this point of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, this doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound easy. But it's different. And it's radical. It's a whole way of thinking that is new and challenging. And it's beautiful if we do it the way that Jesus instructs us to do. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. And I'll end with this passage. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 2, we should be able to connect the dots between what was being taught as far as hating your enemies in the context of Matthew chapter 5 and the radical way that Jesus is giving us, in, or the, the radical way that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of approaching those that we disagree with. So Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Just because you've heard the world tell you that it's okay to hate your enemies. It's okay to look down upon somebody because you disagree with them. Just because the world is telling you to do that, Paul is saying, do not conform to the way of the world. Model your life after the teachings of Jesus. Because what Jesus instructs us to do is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Paul continues, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, we are called to love our enemies. It's not fun. It's not easy. At times, it can be frustrating, exhausting, tiring, all the words that we've already mentioned. But if we are going to commit to making space for people at the table, one of the individuals, one of the groups of people that we are going to have to invite and make room for are people that we disagree with. And in this table mindset, when we disagree, when we get frustrated, when we get exhausted, that the person that we dislike the most in this world is sitting at the same table that God has invited us to, our, our mentality cannot be to get up and say, I want to go to a different table. But what we should be doing is saying, you know what? I'm going to love you the way that I'm called to love you. We're going to work through our differences because I recognize that you've been invited to the table as well.